This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hey everyone, hope you're doing well and welcome back to another edition of the Ariel Hawani Basketball Show. I, of course, am Ariel Hawani and you know, part of the reason why I wanted to start this show was to have conversations like this one. I felt like these types of conversations weren't happening enough for basketball fans. I'm a big fan of the history of basketball and there's no denying the fact that my favorite team are the New York Knicks. I love the 90s Knicks, but I will always have a soft spot in my heart for the 1970s Knicks. I didn't grow up watching those teams. I was born in 1982, but I have read countless books, watched countless documentaries, all that stuff and more on those 70s Knicks. Of course, champions in 1970 and 1973. And I could tell you all about the great stars from those teams. Number 19, the captain, Willis Reed, was obviously one of those stars, part of the foundation. He was the engine. He was the leader. There's a reason why, you know, some 50 years after he played, people still called him the captain. And in a city where there have been a ton of iconic captains, he is the capital T captain. Unfortunately, on Tuesday, we found out that he had passed away at the age of 80. Very sad. And and yes, I know 80, that's a long life. But it was, you know, this is a guy that, to me, always felt larger than life, iconic, never met him, but a true sports, New York sports basketball icon, a pioneer in many respects, a trailblazer. And I was very sad to hear this news. And so I wanted to honor him one of these episodes, especially early on. And when I was thinking of the perfect guest to have on this program to honor the life of the great Willis Reed, number 19, from Louisiana, there was really only one name that came to mind. His name, Harvey Aratone. He, in my opinion, is the definitive chronicler 
of those 1970s Knicks and even afterwards, 80s, 90s. He wrote a book entitled When the Garden Was Eden. I read it many years ago. I urge you all to check it out. That in turn became a 30 for 30. And this this man has been covering New York sports for a very long time. He has worked for the Staten Island Advance, the New York Post, the New York Daily News, the New York Times in particular for 25 plus years. He wrote an incredible obituary on Willis Reed, which was posted on Tuesday after his passing. And so I reached out to Harvey, who I had never met before, to come on. And the stories that he told us about his time covering Willis, some stuff that I had never heard before, were tremendous. I could have talked to him for three hours. It was a really great look at one of the all-time great sports icons in the New York City uh, region, and in my opinion, one of the greatest basketball players of all time, and, and certainly one of the greatest Knicks players of all time. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I hope that we were able to explain to people just how special Willis Reed was, and I hope we were able to honor his legacy. Sit back, relax, enjoy this conversation with Harvey Arito. When I was thinking of trying to reach out to someone about the late, great Willis Reed, there was only one name that came to mind. Uh, I don't think anyone has chronicled his career and those great Knicks teams from the 70s better than Harvey, of course, author of the tremendous book, When the Garden Was Eden, uh, author of nine books. Um, of course, you can see him in the uh, New York Times for decades and, and wrote a fantastic uh, obit on Willis Reed um, when the news came out on Tuesday that he had passed away at uh, the age of 80. Harvey, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, but you're making me feel old. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not trying to do that. I'm just trying to pay I'm respects I'm uh, as, as, a, as a longtime Knicks fan and as a, an admirer of sports media. Uh, this is a really big deal for me, and I really appreciate you saying yes um, to talk about this great man. Um, okay. Could we start here? Do you recall the first time that you met Willis Reed? Sure. Um, I uh, was a very young reporter. Uh, actually, I was more of a glorified office clerk at the New York Post in uh, the spring of 1978. And um, the Post had a, a, a guy covering the team who abruptly quit. And uh, the uh, editors called in. I was working uh, on the, uh, the morning desk, um, you know, doing like a lot of office stuff. Um, and the uh, editors called Peter Vesey, who was the NBA columnist, into the office and said, hey, you know, our, our beat reporter quit. What are we going to do? And Peter pointed to me and said, send that kid. Uh, he knows the game. Uh, because Peter and I would talk on the phone a lot when he was filing his copy uh, from, you know, a lot of late games during the playoffs and things like that. And so the editor called me over and said, can you get to uh, Cleveland, uh, actually the suburbs of Cleveland, Richfield, Ohio, where the Cavaliers at that time played to, by tonight for the game. And I said, well, I'll run there if I have to. Uh, so I got, got, got myself to LaGuardia airport, uh, got to the arena, introduced myself to Willis Reed, uh, and the little schmooze that the coaches do with the reporters before the game. Uh, the Knicks played a close game against Cleveland that night. And of course, wanting to impress my editors working at the New York Post, um, I, I second-guessed every move that Willis made as a coach uh, down the stretch of that game, which they lost. 
finished my story, went back to the hotel, happened to poke my head inside the bar where Willis was standing with his assistant coaches. And he happened to catch my eye, waved me over, put his giant arm around me and said, what are you drinking? Welcome to the beat. So here I am standing there with this guy who was a gem of a human being and, a, you know, just a heck of a nice guy. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, what till he reads the paper tomorrow? So that was my introduction to Willis. <laughs> did he read the paper and did he ever tell you uh, his thoughts on what you wrote? Well, many athletes and coaches tell you, oh, I don't read that crap. Um, but they all do. And if they don't, then someone they know tells them, you're not going to believe what Harvey Araton wrote about you or Peter Vesey or, you know, Mike Lupica or anybody. They all find out one way or another. Uh, and in those days, uh, the space between the reporters covering the team and the team itself was much smaller than it is today. You know, that, that gulf has widened through the years. The media has grown in many ways. Um, and, but in those days we traveled with the team on their bus and on their planes and stayed in the hotels. When we'd get into a hotel, uh, they'd hand us not only a key, uh, but a list of the rooms the players were staying in. So if I wanted to go talk to a player, I would just ring him up or even bang on his door. I mean, today it's totally different. You got to go through their agents and, you know, the PR people, um, so if you wrote something that was critical, the next morning you're climbing on the bus and all eyes are on you. So yes, I mean, Willis obviously knew what I wrote, but that was the first of many such situations, particularly as a young reporter for the New York Post, which was, you know, all about writing for the back page and essentially writing something that was as provocative as possible. Why do you think, um, you know, Decades later, people still refer to him as the captain. There have been many captains, right? That, you know, from Ewing to Marc Messier to the other, you know, sports teams and leagues. But for some, he is the captain and, and maybe the captain of New York sports. The way people talk about him, I, I'd love to ask you in a moment about uh, Walt Frazier's comments about him and his emotion yesterday on the broadcast, Wednesday night on the broadcast. But it, it just seems like um, in a city that has been filled with captains and larger than life personalities and and legends, Hall of Famers. For some reason, this six nine center from Louisiana was the captain among all of them. Why do you think he is still remembered that way? You know, some forty years after his last game. Well, I think uh, a lot of it has to do with you know when we think of captain, we think of leadership, and when we think of leadership, particularly under duress, uh, that seminal moment that comes to mind is always game seven in 1970 where Willis uh, was holed up in the locker room getting shot up with uh, uh, steroid carbocaine, I think it was called, uh, and, um, and made his way to the court in that dramatic entrance. It's probably the most dramatic sports entrance in New York sports history and maybe in all of American team sports history. And so I think, you know, uh, that's the first reason is that, you know, that, that moment is in the minds of, you know, I, we say we like to say all people, but really it's it's a it's a certain demographic. I mean, the baby boom generation, uh, you know, I think for 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 New York sports fans of that age, um, that is the moment uh, that we probably all relish the most. Um, so there's that the whole sense of leadership. But I think also given um, 
the success of those those teams, the, the fact that they're the only uh, champions in the history of the Knicks franchise. Um, I, th- I think we uh, the, the team that team kind of it's almost like an old war platoon, and they didn't lose the war; they won the war. Uh, so there's a sense of of tradition and love among those guys that has been unbreakable through the years. And it has met with some, you know, some, you know, post-championship duress. Um, you know, we were talking about that. And I think actually Walt and Mike Breen were talking about it on the broadcast last night, where Mike asked Walt about how Willis was the one who had him traded to Cleveland. Um, Willis also, uh, when he took over as coach, cut Earl Monroe, who came back later to finish his career with the Knicks, but under Red Holzman when uh, Willis was fired as coach. So, you know, the post-career years of those guys uh, met with some challenges, but nothing ever altered the fact of what they accomplished as a unit. And I think because of that, uh, and because of that history, and because of, you know, basketball New York clings to that history because the closest it's come to another championship was game seven of that Houston series in 94 during the Ewing years. Uh, I think Willis remains the ultimate captain. Uh, It's funny. They all still refer to him as the captain and they all still refer to Bill Bradley as the Senator. Uh, It's just the way it is. And, and a lot of them take their cues from those two guys. When I was working on the book, uh, when the garden was eaten and subsequently the ESPN 30 for 30 that we did, um, whenever I had to uh, get guys to cooperate, whether it was Phil Jackson or Earl or Dick Barnett, it was like if the captain said do it, uh, it would be done. Uh, and they still operated in the way they did back in the days when they were playing. May 8, 1970. Uh, you say that date. I know exactly what you're talking about. Game seven of the 1970 NBA Finals. I was born in 1982, but I've often said if I could go back to one game, uh, that's the one. It just seems so magical. Uh, the stories, not only his appearance, but you know Frazier's performance in that game and, and the Knicks winning their first championship. Um, one of the great sort of footnotes to that game is that it didn't air live, right? It was, it was on tape delay. Even in New York City, I'm wondering... Um, I know you weren't covering the team back then. Do you recall watching that game? And and where were you when you were watching, if you were? Yeah, I lived in, uh, I grew up in Staten Island. Um, and uh, I lived in public housing uh, in a pretty crowded apartment uh, with kids and parents. And and um, so, yes, the game was not on live television uh, because of the NBA's blackout rule to, in those days, protect the live gate. Uh, the league obviously was, you know, a very different one than what it is today. And so, um, we were all basically hanging on Marv Albert's radio call. And, um, because my, had a younger sister who tended to be noisy and I, I was so wound up for this game. I mean, we've been following this team day by day, the entire season and what seemed like a magical year. Uh, and now of course it was all hinging on whether Willis would play, so about 15, 20 minutes before the game was supposed to start, I um, went across the street to the store and I bought a bottle of cola and a bag of chips. And I went to my uh, 1961 Mercury Comet, uh, which was parked in the parking lot of our development. 
and lock myself in the car. Now, like any 17-year-old kid, there wasn't much gas in that car. So I, instead of turning on the motor, I just turned on the power and listened to the game. You know, obviously uh, thrilled that Willis came out, hearing Marv describe it, which was, you know, an amazing to where Marv really established, you know, to me, uh, the primary part of his legacy uh, as a great broadcaster. But sat in the car listening to the Knicks dominate that first half. And wouldn't you know it, about 30 seconds before the half ended, the uh, battery in my car died because obviously, like an idiot, I was sitting there with the power on um, for, you know, an hour or so. And uh, But it didn't matter because they were up by 25 points and the game was essentially over. So I went back up, got my stuff, got on a bus, the car was dead, went to a friend's house, and then we all celebrated. Wow. So you weren't actually listening to the second half? You know, we were at a friend's house. It took me about 20, 25 minutes to get to a friend's house. So we had the radio on, but, you know, it wasn't as if the outcome was ever in any doubt. Uh, the, the final score it was 113 to 99. So it seems perhaps closer than it really was, but it really was just a lot of, you know, garbage time baskets by the Lakers that got it to that point. How close was Willis to not playing that game? I think it was very close. You know, I, 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 in my book, uh, I, I, I told a story about how his roommate at the time, whose name is escaping me, of course, um, uh, a kid from St. John's, uh, they were sharing a room because Willis usually uh, roomed with the rookies. Uh, and uh, they were in uh, L.A. for game six. And Willis got up and said to... Uh, and said to the other guy, um, you know, I, I'm feeling okay. Uh, I might be able to go tonight, meaning game six. And then he he kind of went all jumped off his feet and he came down in excruciating pain. And the other kid whose <laughs> name will come to me as soon as we get off the air, uh, said, It's okay, Cap. Uh, you know, we'll get him at home. And obviously didn't play that night. And um Will just destroyed them. I think he had like 45 or 46 points. Uh, one of the great mysteries of all time is why Wilt was so dominant in game six and yet relatively passive in game seven. Um, but yeah, I think right up until game time, they really didn't know uh, about whether Willis could go. And he was clearly, you know, he couldn't run. I mean, when he came out, everybody said he limped on the court. If you look closely at the video, he kind of looked okay coming out. Maybe a little stiff-legged coming out of the, uh, of the what we came to know as the Willis-Reed Tunnel. May it rest in peace as the garden has changed its configuration. Um, he didn't look all that bad. But once the opening tip occurred and you saw him dragging that leg up and down the court, you knew he was really just playing on a prayer. Just curious, um, really interesting thing that you just said. Why... Would Willis, you know, the captain, uh, perhaps the star of the team in many respects, a team filled with stars, why would he always room with the rookies? It was because he was the captain and he liked huh. to take, I mean, he was such a a team-oriented guy. Uh, I think that's what, um, you know, I, I, I think that um, it's almost hard to describe uh, just how much of a team guy and a leader he was. He just... Uh, it, it was a tradition that he would just take these guys under his wing. Um, you know, 
as they were adjusting to the professional game. And um, so, you know, generally speaking, you know, he would have the rookie, you know, on the road with him. Of course, you know, in that, it's 1968, 69, 70, um, NBA players and NBA teams weren't making enough money to grant guys their own rooms, hmm. which tells it a lot about where the league was at the time. I, I guess that explains the story that uh, Walt Frazier told on the broadcast on Wednesday night, there, his first night out in New York. Uh, he said that uh, Willis got him a date. Um, so he, he was t- he was taking care of everyone. He was looking after all the players on the team, rookie or not, right? Well, he, um, yeah, I remember Walt telling me that. I spent time in, with Walt in St. Croix when I was working on the book. And I remember him saying that Willis would do all these little things, you know, whether it was long guy's money. Um, you know, the, uh, it was one guy, uh, one player who said that, he had, you know, had this girlfriend and they were engaged and something happened. He, he screwed up and, and, uh, and, and his fiance was, was furious with him. And that Willis, they got in a car and drove out to Long Island where, you know, the girl lived and, and, uh, and Willis knocked, they knocked on the door and Willis played mediator and settled wow. the whole thing. I mean, he was just that kind of guy. I mean, you know, a fierce guy on the court as the LA Lakers found out about in 66, but um, but just a gem of a human being off it. Uh, you you wrote about um, you know that that fight in 1966, and and also that he went back to the team and said like no one had my back. And uh, I, I I can't remember who it was. Was it was it Dick Barnett who said you know you were winning, so we didn't we didn't have to jump in there. In any event, I'm just wondering like for such a loyal guy, for such a, a fighter, did he feel betrayed that no one didn't have his back in that moment? I think he, uh, I think he, he, he did. I don't know if betrayal, betrayal might be a little too strong, but I think he was a little miffed that, um, you know, I, I, I think because, um, I think, I believe it was Daryl Imhoff who had grabbed him to hold him from behind. And, and that could have been, you know, really dangerous. Um, uh, but I, you know, the, the guys, t- he retells that story now, with with a little bit of a you know a cackle okay. uh or retell it before obviously before he's passed um you know and and uh i remember barnett asking barnett about it you know barnett um barnett was the one who said uh, as you mentioned uh man you were winning uh and it also happened really fast and it, you know the fight kind of spilled into the lakers bench so the knicks were all the way on the other side of the court um, so perhaps, you know, that was a bit of a defense. Uh, it's interesting that, you know, that was Cassie Russell's, um, rookie year. And I think, I believe it was the home opener at the garden that year. And so Cassie got a, a bird's eye view of what Willis was capable of, you know, when he absolutely lost it. And, you know, and that comes up again in the middle of the 1969, 70 championship season, when, Tazzy lost his cool uh, after being uh, profiled, racially profiled, coming out of Ann Arbor while the team was staying in Detroit and uh, and showing up to practice angry and then taking it out on the white guys at practice, throwing elbows. Uh, and Red Holzman would like to let the, the players police themselves. Usually Willis is the captain. Willis stops practice and says, Tazzy, what the hell are you doing? And Cassie, before he could like edit himself, says, you know, be quiet, Uncle Tom. Now, 
Willis Reed grew up in the Jim Crow South in a segregated town of Louisiana. For him to be called an Uncle Tom in front of this, you know, biracial team, and he's the captain uh, and a proud warrior. I mean, there was a moment, you know, where I think everybody there collect, held their breath that he might do to Cassie what he did to the Lakers. But again, that sense of that instinctual sense of leadership, he understood that if he beat the crap out of Cassie Russell, he might emasculate him and lose him. And he was in a vital cog coming off the bench for that team. And as it turned out, something that got cut out of the film, which disappointed me a little bit, was that the, the end of that story is that Cassie comes off the bench in game seven of the first round playoff series against the Bullets. Uh, and the Knicks are winning most of the game, but not pulling away. And Bradley's having a horrible foul play game. Cassie comes off the bench and makes several baskets. That really saves them. Without that, if Willis had done what he contemplated doing, probably for a fraction of a second, um, maybe Cassie's not even there uh, to bail them out of that first round series, and there's no championship at you know at all. Uh, there's a part of me that kind of hates asking this question because my favorite athlete was Patrick Ewing, um, but you know he was the next great center that the Knicks had, obviously, and, and arguably the greatest Nick of all time, but never won the championships. Um, in, in, in the later years, even teammates like Charles Oakley have, have, have criticized Ewing for not being the leader. And I'm, I'm wondering, as someone who knows all these characters very well, um, what would you say was the difference between Willis Reed? Because you're saying a lot of things here that I've heard people say Patrick didn't do. So um, other than the obvious, the championships and whatnot, if you could compare the two as far as what, who they were and how they led the team, what are the, the, you know, the characteristics, the traits that that come to mind? Well, I think Patrick, um, I, I think Patrick, uh, I think both guys were um, very proud, very proud men uh, who both tended uh, and preferred to lead by example, uh, by their work ethic. Uh, nobody worked harder uh, than Patrick. I mean, the man was drenched with sweat. I used to sit close to the Knicks bench during those years. And sometimes he thought he was going to drown from his own sweat. I mean, um, but I think it's true that uh, Willis had some kind of a knack, an intuitive knack for knowing when to speak up uh, and, uh, um, you know, make sure that guys were doing what they were supposed to be doing. Uh, I think that just came it was something innate that Willis had. And I don't think Patrick really had that. In fairness to Patrick, of course, we all know that he did not have that second superstar. I mean, uh, if you asked me who's the greatest Nick player uh, by virtue of his skills, I would say Walt Frazier. Mm. Uh, now, the years in, in those days, the, the careers tended to be shorter usually a guard by the time they reached 31, 32, they were being kind of phased out. Um, but uh, I would say Frazier, uh, I, if you ask me who's the most important player, I would say Reed. Um, and then if you ask me who statistically is the most prolific player, I would say Patrick. Um, but I think there was a moment in that, that I witnessed. And again, you know, it's, it's, it comes down to these, these 
momentous moments in the biggest games on the biggest stage. And I do remember watching game seven in Houston and I was sitting under the basket right by the Knicks bench. And, you know, as Starks was firing up shot after shot and in some ways Riley didn't restrain him because in Pat's mind, Starks was really the most cold-blooded shooter on that team. And Pat really had belief that Starks was ultimately going to make one. And he really didn't believe in that. I mean, people would say, oh, put Rolando Blockman in the game. And he hardly played in that ser- in that in that playoff season. Um, and Hubert Davis was very young, and he really believed in Starks. You know, in 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 Indianapolis, when the Knicks were on the ropes in game six. Patrick had a, he was fumbling the ball in the post and, and John Starks had a hell of a game and basically saved them to get them back home for the seventh game, which they pulled out by the skin of their teeth. Um, but what I remember most about that seventh game is that I was waiting for, for, for uh, Patrick to grab Starks by the Jersey and say, get me the ball or I'll kill you, <laughs> you know, because this was Patrick's team. And this was his time. It was him against Akeem Olajuwon, you know, the, the superstar matchup. And there's some, there was something in Patrick's mind that should have been telling him, if we're going down, we're going down with me. And he ne- and I sat there right by the bench during the timeouts, and I never saw anything like that happen. And that, to me, was a moment of leadership, an opportunity that escaped Patrick, you know, in that series. And I love Patrick, and I think he's obviously a great, great player. But, you know, when he was a young player uh, and they were kind of lost at sea during the UB Brown years and um, a lot of injuries, Bill Cartwright all the time. And then Mark Jackson joined the team, and they suddenly, with Rick Patino as the coach, went on that nice little run. Um, a lot of the improvement was because Mark Jackson was a natural leader. And Patrick had that sidekick. Not he wasn't a great player. He was a great uh, uh, distributor and saw the court beautifully. But he had leadership skills. I think that that's what was lacking from those '90s teams in key moments when they might have been better served. At their healthiest, in your opinion, which team was better? 1970 Knicks, 73 Knicks. Now the the obvious big X factor is. You know, Earl DePearl was on the 73 team, but I'm just wondering, you know, those guys were younger, younger, of course, in 70. In your opinion, who wins, the 73 team or the 70 team in, in, in a fictitious head-to-head matchup? Well, if you talk to those guys, Frazier, Reed, I think Bradley, and certainly Earl, um, they will all tell you that the 73 team was better because, not just because, you know, I mean, Barnett was still an effective player in 1970. He was a very underrated defender who often was the on-ball defender with the, you know, the bet whether it was Jerry West or you know Earl Monroe when he was on the Bullets. Um, but Earl was a better player overall than uh, certainly on the offensive side than than uh, than Dick Barnett. But the key thing, and then Phil Jackson was healthy as a sub um, in the '73 season where he missed the '70 playoffs, and also for a team that did have a guy like Willis who played so hard and did have some obviously problems with his knees. Um, that team had Jerry Lucas mm. and, you know, he provided something that even will, I mean, Jerry Lucas as a strategic 
uh, piece would have fit perfectly into today's game because he shot that, you know, that that little shot put jumper from 25 feet easily. Uh, so they had that element as well. Uh, Reed was reasonably healthy. He was the MVP of the playoffs of the finals. Again, he was healthy in for the 73 playoffs. So all in all, I think the 73 team was, was the better one. And so, you know, you, you talked about him replacing Red Holtzman, um, as head coach first season, they make the playoffs. I believe he lasts 14 games in his second season and gets unceremoniously fired. Why didn't it, did it not work out for him as head coach and how much did that hurt him that the team gave up on him? The organization gave up to him, gave up on him just 14 games into the second season as head coach. He was bitterly disappointed and, and devastated by that firing. Um, you know, the whole saga of how Willis became the coach uh, it's, it's really almost a, a book in itself. Um, he, he wanted to coach and red wanted him to succeed him. But Red felt that Willis had never been a coach and felt and believed that, you know, he should apprentice as Red's assistant for a year or two. Uh, but Willis didn't want to. I mean, Willis felt like, you know, he was a, a kind of a coach on the floor and he felt that he believed he was ready. And he also, you know, had had played for a guy he deeply respected and, and felt that he was prepared. Um, so he lobbied the general manager, Eddie Donovan, uh, to take over. And what made it easier for the, the, the front office to do was that the team was, you know, it was, in, it was in its decline from the glory years. And I believe it was two years that they went without making the playoffs, uh, Red's last two years. So that gave them an excuse to make the switch to Willis. So yes, that first year, uh, it was a kind of an uneven team. I mean, they had, you know, Earl Monroe was still on the team and, Bob McAdoo and Spencer Haywood. And, um, you know, they had a couple of they had Ray Williams on the team. And uh, the second year, uh, uh, second, second year started with Michael Ray Richardson as a rookie. So it was a, it was a, it was a combination of veterans who didn't quite fit together and uh, young players who really weren't ready to play, you know, high level. Um but they did make the playoffs that first year and even won around. I believe they it was used to be called a mini series, best of three. And I believe they beat Cleveland that year. Um, and um, then they went in, I think, uh, played Philadelphia, uh, the Julius Irving Sixers, and lost that series uh, predictably. Uh, that summer, uh, Willis was campaigning uh, very hard for them to sign a free agent center, Marvin Webster from the Seattle Supersonics, uh, who had gotten to the finals that year and lost in the seventh game to the uh, Washington Bullets. And um, and he even went so far as to tell a reporter for the Newark Star-Ledger that if I don't get my center, because he can't win without a center, uh, which is the league that he grew up in, I might quit. And remember, like, the reporter who told me the story, uh, said, and Jimmy Wergelis, who was Willis's PR guy, was, Willis, Willis, don't say that. But Willis was outspoken, and, you know, he said what he, what he, what he thought. Uh, well, they did sign Marvin Webster as a free agent, but in those days, um, the commissioner had the right to award compensation to the team which lost the free agent player. And so Larry O'Brien, who was the commissioner before David Stern, said, okay, you know, Let's let's be fair here. 
they're losing their center, which was considered to be the, the crucial piece. So he took Lonnie Shelton, who was a very young, talented power forward off the Dicks roster, along with the number one draft pick, and I believe it was like $450,000, and awarded that to Seattle. Well, losing Shelton was a big deal because he was a young, very talented player, uh, aggressive power forward. Um, and Marvin Webster, who was a very good defender, uh, but not very much of an offensive player, from the time he came to New York, was plagued with tendonitis in his knees, and he had kidney problems and uh, all kinds of situations. It never really worked out. And so the season got off to a yeah, a slow start. I think there was six and eight in those 14 games. And I was in the middle of it, again, as the young beat reporter for The Post. There had been a newspaper strike for like three months in 1978. And Rupert Murdoch settled the Post, uh, settled with the unions at The Post before the Daily News and The Times. So I rushed out to the West Coast to cover the Knicks on their swing. And in Seattle, after practice one day, I asked Willis, um, are all these rumors about your job? This, uh, the Garden had a new president, Sonny Werblin, who was a very big sports executive who had helped uh, create the Meadowlands Complex, and he had signed Joe Namath to the Jets. And um, there were a lot of rumors going around that Sonny wanted to make a change and put his own stamp on the team. And uh, I asked Willis, are these rumors, you know, problematic? And he said, well, yeah, you know, I have a lot of young players that need to know who the coach is, so I'm either in or out. Uh, well, it was late in the afternoon in Seattle, so it was already evening in New York, and I wrote my story, and I wrote it in a kind of a nuanced way that it wasn't really an ultimatum that he was, you know, giving the Knicks, but the post being the post, kind of that's the way it was played, and um, the Knicks went on the trip, continued the trip, and when we got back to New York, Werblin summoned Willis to the garden and fired him. And got up at the press conference the next day and said, nobody gives me an ultimatum. This was after I had called Werblin the day after my story, the day my story ran, and said, you know, it wasn't really an ultimatum. But he used it as the excuse because he believed that, well, he wanted to put his own stamp on the team, as I said. And Howard Cosell, who was a confidant of Werblin's, kept whispering in his, in his, in his ear, you know, bring back the old man, meaning Halsman. And that's what they did. They brought back Holzman and uh, Willis was dismissed. And this was the job that the post playing job that he really, really wanted. And he was doing OK. Would he have been a great coach? It's impossible to know. But he wasn't doing poorly. They did make the playoffs where they hadn't done, you know, under Holzman for two years. Um, he probably deserved a much, a much longer uh, trial uh, before such a dramatic move was made, especially considering what an iconic figure he was for that franchise. Gosh, I, I love these stories so much. I can't tell you how thankful I am that you are sharing these with us. I mean, I could listen to these for hours. I, I won't take uh, hours out of your day here, but I, I really do appreciate it. Could I ask, you know, from one journalist to another, how did you feel when your story was kind of used as the excuse? Did, like, you know, I, I can't even imagine um, your reaction, even though you knew that you didn't write it that way, how did you feel and, and how did you react? Like, did you call Willis and explain to him your side of the story? How did that all go down? You know, Willis, after the firing, uh, he kind of disappeared for a while. And um, 
you know, my reaction, of course, it was a welcome to tabloid New York and, and, and particularly uh, Rupert Murdoch's tabloid New York. Uh, and and don't get me wrong, I loved working for the Post. I had I had a great time working there. It gave me my start in the city. Uh, and uh, but that's just that's just the reality of working for a you know a noisy tabloid like the Post was and remains. Um, but Willis kind of disappeared. And um, through the years, um, uh, you know, I suspected that, and it was only logical that he was not happy with me or the story. Uh, but through the years, um, you know, when he came back to uh, coach the Nets and then he was their president and general manager, then he was at the Garden, you know, it's sort of more of a nominal executive position. And then finally he finished his career in, in with the New Orleans franchise. Um, I, you know, it never came up or it didn't come up Uh but I have to say, he was always a perfect gentleman. He, if I called him, he returned my calls, because I think in, at the core, at his core, Willis understood the media. But uh, it's interesting uh, when he did when his retirement in New Orleans was announced. I arranged to interview him by phone, and we were talking, you know, about different things. And I, I think this was like 2007. It was some, in the couple of years after Katrina. Uh, and the New Orleans had to move to Oklahoma City, and that's about the time he decided to pack it in. And um, and so we were talking. I said, "So Willis, you know, we talked about your obviously your high moments of you, across your career. What was the lowest moment?" And he said, "Well, Harvey, you should know that one." And and I immediately started to choke, gag a little bit. And I said, "You know, Willis, uh, I've always wanted to talk to you about this." It never seemed like the right time. And maybe I was a little fearful to bring it up, but I, I want you to know that that it was so early in my career, but that still is one of the most difficult stories that I, you know, that I remember being involved in because of the outcome and how much it hurt me. I mean, you were an iconic figure in my life when I was in, you know, middle school, high school, and and college. And he, and I said, and I hope through all these years, you haven't harbored any ill feeling toward me. And then I did say, uh, didn't exactly write it that way, the way it appeared, but he stopped me and he said, you know, Harvey, yeah, I'm sure at the time, you know, that I was upset uh, and I thought it was unfair, but I had a lot of time to think and Werblin wanted to make a change he was going to find one excuse to, to do it one way or another. So, no, I understand you were just, just doing your job. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I felt pretty good about uh, like that. Finally, we finally put it out there on the table and we had a chance to discuss it. And wouldn't you know, like a couple of years later, when somebody broached the subject of doing a book about the championship seasons that became when the garden was eaten, um, I had heard that another reporter in New York had um, reached out to Willis with the idea of perhaps doing a similar kind of book. And Willis said, um, you know, I don't really want to, he kind of blew it, blew it off. And so I knew that I had heard that. And when I called him, because again, without him, without Bradley, you know, it wasn't going to really fly. Uh, we had already lost a busher. We had lost Halsman. I needed all the pr remaining principal guys to be all in. 
And Willis was the first guy I called being the captain. And I called him home in Louisiana and I told him what I was thinking. And he said, well, if you're going to do it, um, you know, that's fine. He said, you know, give me a call. We'll make a date and have you come down and spend some time. And he was incredibly accommodating. I mean, I went down there and spent like four days with him. He took me up to Bernice. He lives in the Grambling area, Rustin Grambling area, where he went to school. And Bernice, Louisiana, which is about about a half hour from there, uh, straight north, the small town, um, an old mill town, a textile mill town. And he, he took me up there. He introduced me to people he'd grown up with, black and white, segregated town at the time. Uh, he couldn't have been more accommodating. And, you know, I think we had developed this, I don't want to, it's hard to call these things friendships because they're more like professional relationships than anything else. Um, but I think, you know, over the years, we established a good professional working relationship. And I think he, I'd like to think that he saw me as fair-minded um, and, um and so it all worked out, uh, and it was great. But uh, I'm so glad, uh, aside from, uh, in addition to being able to spend that kind of time with him, you know, in his place, um, that I had that conversation with him when he retired and we finally, you know, got that out on the table. That was important to me. By the way, how did the city and the organization react when he went to the Nets? Uh, I think because... Um, you know that was already so far in the future. It was so it was so it was so removed from the championship years uh, that it really didn't um, it really didn't have any impact whatsoever. Okay. Um, and I think you know because the Nets played in Jersey, uh, you know, it's only as the crow flies a few miles from Madison Square Garden. It may as well have been Iowa. They, you know, to New Yorkers, they just barely existed over there and you know during the jason kidd years when the nets made the finals i think there was some you know resentment uh oh man if only we could have jason kidd at the garden you know playing for the knicks but for the most part the nets were irrelevant to the nick fan base and so i think people were happy to see willis in the league and working everybody liked him um and uh you know we had some talented players over there Derek coleman kenny anderson i do know what really was really devastating for him was when Drazen Petrovic died in that auto accident because he had acquired him, um, brought him over from Portland and, and Petrovic had, you know, was turning into a star. And then to have that tragic ending, Willis, that really hit Willis hard. When was the last time you spoke to him? Uh, you know, I want to say that the last text that I exchanged with Willis was about a year ago. And um, it was something about um, the 70 team. Uh, and I sent him like a, a clip or something. Um, and I just said something like um, one of the greatest parts of my youth, you know, thank you. And, um, and he, he texted me back. But his health was already beginning to decline. In fact, I did a, um, a Zoom. When, for the 70 
championship season, uh, the 50th anniversary, uh, the Museum of the City of New York wanted to do a panel discussion live. And we had it all set up and, you know, Bradley and Earl representing the Bullets um, and Walt uh, and I think maybe uh, Marv were going to be involved. And I was going to be the moderator. And uh, then COVID hit. So that, you know, ended that. And then um, when it was apparent in the fall that things still weren't opening up, uh, we decided to do it by Zoom. And at the last minute, uh, almost unannounced, I think Bradley convinced uh, Willis to come on. But a lot of it was convincing his wife, Gail, uh, to let him do it because she was the one monitoring his health. So he came on and uh, he seemed a little not like himself. And but it was great to see him um, and great to, you know, uh, have him participate. Uh, but not long after that, uh, Willis's communications with people began to shut down. Uh, I was actually very surprised that to see the video uh, that he sent to uh, the garden for the recent reunion of the 73 team. And as it turns out, he shot that video from his hospital, from the hospital. And um, so, again, courage, you know, willingness to step up, which defined that man, um, just... uh, uh, really remarkable person. Finally, one more, if I may, um, as you alluded to, you know, we're, we're, we're taught, uh, at a very early age, um, in journalism school and whatnot to not befriend our subjects. Right. But clearly you have an admiration and, and it's impossible to not have a relationship with someone who you covered for so long. When you tweeted, uh, the, the obituary that you wrote on Tuesday, you wrote really difficult to have written this in advance, hard as hell, to have to post it, rest in peace, Willis Reed, the captain. I'm just wondering, of all the pieces you wrote, was this the most difficult one? You know, to, to actually have to write an obituary on a man that you respected and had this, you know, long-standing relationship with. Well, again, a lot of these things, uh, you know, for people in the public domain uh, of a certain age, uh, they are mostly written um, in advance. And this obituary, I can say now, was actually written several years ago. Wow. After I left the staff at the Times, I started, I was, st- I'm still affiliated with the paper. I still write occasionally for sports, but um, I started doing a number of advanced obituaries on aging basketball people. Uh, the one on John Havlicek passed away. I wrote his, Paul Silas, just uh, maybe three months ago, passed away. I'd written his. Um, and, um, Willis's was the first I was asked to do. And I remember uh, essentially feeling like, no, I can't do that. I mean, you know, Willis Reed is special to me. Um, But my editor said, um, well, somebody's going to do it. Better it should be someone who cares about him. Uh, So um, that kind of, you know, changed my thinking about it. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's, it, you kind of put yourself into a state of mind when you're writing something like that, that, Hey, I'm writing a feature about the guy's life and the stuff that of the particulars of details of someone's passing are not going to be filled in until after they pass. So, you know, and then you are just kind of thinking like, I want to do justice as best I can um, to anyone really, but certainly to somebody 
who you had a profound respect for. Uh, if I could just leave you with uh, this last thing. When I, when I was, um, I think, which captures the essence of who Willis was as a basketball player and in many respects as a man. When I went down to Louisiana and spent that time with him for the book, I packed up my bag with a bunch of video, uh, a bunch of uh, DVD cassettes. And video from the old NBA is really hard to come by. Uh, they just didn't, you know, they just didn't take and archive a lot of stuff. And it's all black and white and grainy. So I went on a hunt because I wanted to watch some of those games, rewatch some of those games. Um, and I found the league helped me, you know, they're like old scout tapes uh, that were put on DVD. And I had game seven of the finals uh, against the Lakers and game seven in 1973 of the uh, series against the uh, Celtics where they won game seven in, in Boston garden. But I also found a really poor quality video, but it was a video of game five, the game where Willis gets hurt. And so I tell him this, we're sitting in his living room and I say, Willis, do you want to watch the video? Hoping that he'll say yes. And he says, well, which games do you have? I said, game seven. Yeah, I've seen that, you know. Um, and I said, well, I have game five of the 70 finals. He goes, you have game five? He said, I've never seen that game because he got hurt in the first quarter. And then he was in the, in the locker room, you know, being treated, whatever, listening to Marv, Marv's radio uh, broadcast. But he had never actually seen this, you know, which is really arguably the most important game because if they don't win, they go back to, you know, to LA and get crushed. And that's that. Um, so this incredible game where, you know, Stallworth and DeBusher and Nate Bowman are, you know, trying to guard Wilt and they somehow pull it out, right. To keep hope alive. And so we watched it and I said, well, if you want to keep it, he said, no, I don't want to keep it. It's yours. I said, you can. He said, no, I tell you what, I'll keep it. I want to show a couple of my friends and my wife and, and I'll send it back to you. I said, you don't have to, but, you know, if you want to, that's fine. So a few weeks later, this envelope shows up and I open it up and the video is in its case and there's a note attached to it. And it says, thanks for the video, our greatest victory. And I thought to myself, I thought, wow, he's calling this his, their greatest victory, and he had really no role in it. And that kind of sums up who Willis Reed was. If they won, he was good. And it had nothing to do with ego. You know, how many points he scored, how many rebounds he got. Um, it was just about that they won, and they stepped up and figured out a way to contain Wilt Chamberlain without him. Uh, just a wonderful, I think, example of that captures who he was. Oh, that, that, that's incredible. That gave me chills. Thank you for that. And uh, thank you for this. Uh, a huge privilege and honor for me. Thank you for all your great work and, and for sharing some memories of the, the late, great Willis Reed. Harvey, I really, really appreciate it. Wish you nothing but the best. And uh, I hope we don't have to read any more of your obits for quite some time, if you get what I'm saying. But I am... Uh, I am happy that you agreed to do it, and uh, I, I appreciate you sharing it with all of us. I'm, I'm happy you were the man to do that. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure, and thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
Can't thank Harvey enough for his memories, his time, his insight, tremendous stuff on the life of Willis Reed and really makes you appreciate just, you know, the kind of leader he was, the kind of person he was. Uh, sounds like just an incredible guy uh, who had incredible, you know, standards and ethics and morals and just seemed like the ultimate teammate, really. Uh, the kind of guy that you want in a foxhole with you and, you know, speaks to the fact that there's a reason why they still called him the captain. There's a reason why the players still checked in on what he wanted to do. And if he was okay with it, they did it. And if you watched the Knicks Heat broadcast on uh, Wednesday evening, you could just see the emotion from Walt Frazier and Mike Breen talking about his impact, talking about his legacy, talking about their, their connection to him, friendship, all that stuff and more. Just a beautiful, beautiful soul and a beautiful time for New York City sports and basketball and for the NBA. Uh, a giant has, has left us, uh, a man who will never be forgotten, his number 19, uh, obviously retired and in the rafters at MSG, um, a man who played bigger than he was, just 6'9", but uh, really one of the all-time great Knicks players. And I thought Harvey painted a perfect picture of who he was as a human being as a leader, as a teammate, and as a captain. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you so much to Harvey Ariton for taking some time out of his schedule. I know it was a busy time for him to talk to us about Willis. And do check out When the Garden Was Eden, a tremendous book on those 1970s Knicks. I enjoyed it very much, and the 30 for 30 was great as well. Thank you for your support. Please continue to rate, download, subscribe, review, comment. All those things and more goes a long way. I promise you. Thank you to Showtime Sports and Showtime Basketball for the opportunity. Hope you're enjoying the Ariel Hawani Basketball Show, and we will be back next week with another great guest. I can't wait to share this one with you. I promise it will be very, very special. Until then, have a great weekend.